Well, good morning. My name is Steve Noble. I serve on the family ministry team here at the church, which means I get to spend a lot of time with awesome students like Max and Merrill. Thank you guys for being here with us. And we're uh, thrilled to be here together with all of you as we bring our Christmas presents series to a close. As we prepare our hearts to dive into that passage they just read, would you join me first, though, in a word of prayer? God, we invite you into this space. We invite you to move in our hearts anew. We invite you to challenge us, to challenge the way that we have come to see the world, that we have come to see our life. God, we ask that you would, you would challenge what we have claimed even to be true, God, that you would help us to see what your truth is. Help us to know you. Help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Well, over the past weeks, we've tried intentionally to explore as a church what it looks like for us to truly experience Christ's presence. Because the reality is this time of year, this Christmas season, can tend to get so busy, so loaded with expectations and obligations that we can get to this point in the Christmas season when our trees are kind of turning brown and New Year's is on the horizon and we look back and we realize we haven't experienced God in the ways that we thought we might. We haven't found time to still ourselves and come into the presence of God. To be sure, Christmas is a time of incredible joy, but when it comes to finding moments of calm, to really be present with God, that, that can be hard to do. And that is one of the beautiful things about a community like this. We have an opportunity to come together, to come into this space, and to encourage each other, to challenge each other, to encourage each other to leave behind all that we bring into this room, to leave behind everything that would slow us down or hold us back, to leave all that at the door, and to come simply into the presence of God together. As we seek to do that today, I'd like to explore the varied responses we see um, in that Matthew 2 passage that Max and Merrill just read. But before we get there, I think it's prudent from time to time to remind ourselves of why Christmas is such a big deal in the first place. Why something like three billion people in the world last week celebrated it why the birth of Christ was a big deal in the first place. You see, the story of Christmas is really the story of us. It's the story of the redemption of humanity, and to really grasp its significance, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created everything. He made everything that we see. He made the world here and the universe beyond. The Bible says that he numbers the stars and he calls them each by name. He made the world around us. He made 
the oceans and the dry land, plants and trees. He made deserts and jungles and mountains, and then he filled all of his creation with every type of living thing. He made fish in the sea and birds in the air. He made lions and bears and elephants and penguins, which my nephew are really excited about. He made all these things, and then he saw that it was good. People will argue until I think the end of time about the nature of how that came into being, uh, the methods of creation, the timing of it all. What I want us to cling to today is that at one point there was nothing, and then there was life. And we believe that God was at the center of that. I bring us back to this creation narrative this morning because as we talk about presence as we have over the past weeks, this next little bit is really important. You see, into that good creation, God made us. He made man and woman. In his image, he made us, and he made us unique in all of creation. He made us to know him to experience him, to be with him. He made us to be in this communion with him. Simply, we were made to be in his presence. It's written on our hearts. It's something that's central to all humanity, and it's something that I think at some level we can resonate with because there's something in us that longs to be connected to something bigger than us. And so for a long time, that's how it was. We were with him. We were with God in the beginning. In the biblical account of the garden, we see God walking amongst his creation. He was present with them. He was interacting with them intimately. In the beginning, everything was as it should be in the world, but we know it was not to stay that way. You see, into this perfect creation, we introduced sin. We did what was wrong, and in so doing, we separated ourselves from God. We physically removed ourselves from his presence. The image is, if we were made to be here with God, when we did wrong, we physically removed ourselves from his presence. We created this separation. We broke that connection. And because God is the source of everything that is good in the world, when we broke that connection, we introduced a brokenness into our world, and we can see that evidence of that brokenness all around us. We experience it. We feel it. We feel the pain of sickness and death. We experience hardship and injustice in our own lives, and we see it abounding across the world, and there's a part of us that looks at that. We look at that brokenness, and we know that we were created for more. But we can't escape the brokenness of the world we live in. I like to use the example of a bridge. We are made to be connected to God, to enjoy his presence and to have this interaction. But when we allowed sin into our world and into our lives and we removed ourselves from God's presence, we broke that connection. And because of that, we can no longer live the lives that we were made to live. 
Every major world religion affirms some version of this state of things because, again, the reality is plain to see in our world that things aren't quite right. There's some brokenness. We see it on the news. We have metal detectors in our schools. There are these horrible diseases and famines ravaging parts of the world. We can point to forest fires in California, to natural disaster this week in Indonesia and Italy. There are over 40 million refugees living in the world today. We feel in our souls, we feel in our souls this, this, this understanding that things are not as they should be. That's not unique to us. That's a universal observation. And the preponderance of world religions, they affirm this brokenness, but then they would endeavor to prescribe some course of action by which we might earn our way back into a right standing with God. They say, if you can do this and this and this and this, and you can live your life in a certain way, you might earn your way back into a right standing with the Almighty. The biblical account is different. Instead of giving a formula by which we might earn our way back into a right relationship with the Almighty, the Bible says that there is nothing that we can do to earn our way back. The Bible says that there is nothing we can do to fix that bridge, to bring our world back to the way it should be. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death, and it says that because of what we have done, we deserve to live and die in this state of separation from God. We deserve that. The Bible says that all have sinned, that we did that. We broke that connection, and there's nothing that we can do on our own to repair that right relationship with God. We're just not strong enough. And so as we talk about presence with God, the reality is that left to our own devices, we couldn't do that. We couldn't live the life we were called to on our own. And if the story ended there, it would be quite the downer. But it doesn't. That covers about the first three pages of the Bible. And so the Bible goes on, not with words of condemnation or despair, but instead it outlines God's plan to make things right himself. It says that we can't do it. But instead, it points us to a God who is strong to do all things, who is mighty to save, who sees us and knows us, who is loving and kind. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In the Bible, we see God working within human history to enact a plan to bring us back to him. The Old Testament is the story of God working through human history to make that plan a reality. That's why it reads kind of like a history book, because it's a history book. It's the history of God working through human history to bring us back to him. And throughout this Old Testament, we see God continue to show up saying, things are hard, but I'm going to fix it. 
He keeps showing up saying, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to save you. I'm going to send someone to save you. He tells Abraham, I'm going to send someone to save all people. Someone in your line, he's going to come and be a blessing to all nations. He tells Moses at the end of his life, you were great. You saved a lot of people. I'm going to send someone who's like you, but he's greater than you. He will save more people. To David, he says, someone in your line is going to come and save all people for all time. God speaks to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Daniel, to Ezekiel, to Malachi, to Micah. These prophets, they keep pointing forward saying, God's going to do it. Things are hard, but God's going to do it. He's going to set things right. The Bible says that we were stuck and that there is nothing that we can do on our own to make things right, but that God saw us in our helplessness. He sees us in our helplessness and he has reached down into our world to make a way for us to experience restoration. He has made a way for us to experience the presence we were made for. You see, into our broken world, to our broken side of the bridge, God, the almighty creator of the universe, came. He came to our broken side of the bridge. That's the story of Jesus. That's the story of Christmas, that into a real time, in a real place, God himself saw fit to step into our world that we had made such a mess of. He made a way for us to come back. He knew there was nothing that we could do to fix things. There was nothing that we could do to make things right. So he came here and did what we could not. My friends, the way has been fixed because God came here in the form of a child. The way has been fixed because of what that child, what Jesus would go on to do because of that, because of him, we can once again experience the fullness of relationship with God that we were made for. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. He says, Jesus Christ became incarnate for one purpose to make a way back to God that man might stand before him as he was created to do, the friend and lover of God himself. The way has been fixed. Now we know the world was not made perfect in that moment, but we can now live the life that we were made to live. We can live in the presence of God and we can continue, we can trust God that he is continuing to work and when he promises that one day he will set creation back to how it should be, he will set all things right, we can trust that he will do that. My friends, the way has been fixed. But it's not enough for us to see that there's a way forward. We have to take a step to belabor the image of the bridge. The bridge has been fixed, but we have to be willing to walk across it. Too many of us stand on this side of things and we say, yay, God, you did it, Merry Christmas. But when it comes time to let go of all the things that we have come to love in this broken world, we pause and we consider is it really worth it? We have been given an incredible opportunity to experience once again 
the presence of God, to live the life we were called to live, but we have to be willing to step into it, to leave behind all that would hold us back. You see, the story of Christmas is the story of us. It's the story of God intervening on our behalf once for all mankind. And when we are faced with such an incredible act of love, it necessitates a response from us. It requires that we respond. In that passage that Max and Merrill read a few moments ago, we see people responding to Christ in three very distinct ways. First, the Magi. We don't know who they were. We don't know where they came from. Historians suggest that they were likely Persian um, or Babylonian in descent, but we're really not sure. Um, Some even suggest that Daniel or his contemporaries, while they were in exile, maybe left behind some writings or prophecy speaking of this coming king that would explain their knowledge of the Messiah, but we don't know. Tradition would suggest that there were three magi. Um, We've named them. Belshazzar, Melchior, and Gaspar. We know enough to suggest that none of that is true. There were almost certainly more than three of them, and those likely were not their names. But we do know they were people of means. They were men of influence and significance. They marched into Jerusalem with such aplomb that the king was troubled and the whole city with him. There's a significance to that statement. If three dudes ride into town on camels, the capital city of the region is not going into an uproar. But if a caravan of foreign dignitaries comes into town seeking a king, that's enough to maybe raise the collective blood pressure. We know they were foreigners, they weren't Jewish, they were people that many assumed would have no role to play in the redemption of Israel. They were outsiders, but they saw the significance, they felt the significance of what God was doing for all humanity that they came to join in this celebration in that we catch a glimpse of God's heart for the world, not just for a people. And importantly, we see that they left behind all they had. They left their sphere of influence. They set aside their significance. They left the chambers where their their word carried weights. They crossed a desert. Historians suggest it probably took two years. That's a big sacrifice. They crossed a desert and they came to worship the God who had come. They humbled themselves before a child who would be king. In short, they got off their thrones and they humbled themselves. In stark contrast, we see the response of Herod. Herod was known as the king of the Jews at the time, though he wasn't by birth a Jew himself. He was a puppet king set up by Rome to oversee the volatile and semi-remote region of ancient Judea. He was a ruthless king, a paranoid king. He was so worried that someone would come and take his little kingdom from him that he would kill anyone he saw as a potential threat. That's Unfortunately, not an exaggeration. Historians indicate that he killed hundreds, his friends, his family members, his allies, his wife, 
his mother-in-law, his children were not safe. He was kind of a bad guy. And so in this Matthew passage, we see him handling things kind of how we expect him to. He handles things poorly. He hears about a child who has been born and that is king, and he's worried that someone, that anyone would have a right to challenge his authority and position, and so he lashes out. He tries to trick the wise men into revealing the whereabouts of the child, and when they do not fall for his trick, he responds violently. To be honest, he responds with a ruthlessness that is hopefully hard for any of us to identify with. But what I think is important for us to see is that he responds by refusing to get off his throne. He refuses to humble himself. He refuses to consider that there might be a bigger story going on than just what he's at the center of. And I think that is something we can resonate with. I think we can resonate with that. We live in a world where status is king. Instead of a throne, it might be a job title, a position of influence, a chance to make it big, a chance for our kids to play Division I sports. In my line of work, we see all these celebrity pastors and there's something in us that's like, it could, it could be me. It's not. And when anything gets in the way of that, when anything threatens to get in the way of those dreams that we have, we want to fight for it. Are we willing to lay those things down? Are we willing to get off our throne? Faced with salvation, faced with the creator of the world, Herod refuses to get off his throne. He can't look past himself, and because of that, he's blind to the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. Finally, and maybe most challenging of responses we see in this story is that of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. You see, when the Magi came to Jerusalem asking about this king who had been born, Herod gathers all these chief priests and these teachers of the law from the temple to him, and he says, where is this promised king to be born? And they reply in Bethlehem in Judea. And then they quote the Old Testament prophet of Micah to him. They pull their Bibles out and say, see? They say this, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Not only do they know where the Savior is going to be born, they pull their Bibles out and they explain how they know it. They reference the scriptures in defense of their knowledge. These are people who are fully invested in Jewish community. These are people who have engaged with the scriptures their whole lives. These are people who have received the word. These are church people. These are the elders, the pastors, the leaders, the people who come every week. These are church people. But when faced with the reality that salvation had finally come, that everything God had promised through the prophets was coming into being, they don't respond. 
They don't inquire about the child any further. This is the end of of the story for them. We don't hear about them anymore, but we can infer from how they engage with Jesus later that they were too focused on themselves. They were too set on being at the center of everything that was going on. They needed to be the heroes of the story of salvation themselves. They relished being at the center of the temple system. And a message of God intervening in their helplessness would not have resonated with them. And again, I think there's something in us that's like that. We very much want to be in control. We want to be the heroes of the story, but that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that into our brokenness and our helplessness, God himself reached down into creation and made a way for us. Are we willing to accept that we are not the heroes of the story of salvation? We are recipients of a free gift that we did not and do not deserve. In this passage, we see a group of people so preoccupied with their own interpretation of what's going on that they miss the story that's unfolding right in front of them. The story of Christmas is the story of us. It's the story of God intervening in the midst of our brokenness. You see, we were created to know God. God made us to know him. And though we had separated ourselves from God and brokenness reigned in the world, God himself reached down into creation in a real time, in a real place, and he made a way for us to know him again. Jesus would say later in life that I came that you may have life and have it to the full, and now our God stands with his arms open wide, and he calls us to come to him. He calls us to live the life that we were made for. He calls us to cross this proverbial bridge and draw near into his presence. How will we respond? Are we willing to get off our throne? Are we willing to set aside our own significance, or like Herod, Will we cling to the things we have gained in this broken world? Will we fight to maintain the type of life that we have grown accustomed to or we dream of? Are we willing to hear and listen that God calls us? Are you willing to not be the hero of your own story of salvation? Or like the priests, are we just too closed? Are we too self-focused to see what is happening right in front of us? My prayer for you, my prayer for me, for this church is that we would be like the Magi. That we would humbly set aside everything that we have in this broken world. That we would draw near into the presence of the God who made us and the God who offers us a hope of something more than we could ever experience in this world without him. Jesus said, whoever would save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Jim Elliott famously summarizes that verse in this way. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. My friends, the bridge has been repaired. We can live in the presence of our God. We have just got to muster up the courage and the humility to step into it. We've just got to cross that bridge and draw near into the presence of the God who made us. Will you join me in a word of prayer? God, we confess that we do what is wrong, we do what we should not, that we so often fail to live the life that you have called us to live. And God, we know that in that brokenness, in our brokenness, you see us and you love us. That we are not condemned to face the punishment we deserve, but instead... We have an opportunity to live with you in eternity. Lord, we receive that grace. Give us courage to live the life that you have called us to live. Give us courage to be the people that you have called us to be. Draw near to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.